Okay. Hello, world. Once again, we have a great episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We're bringing on Liz Matskin, uh, who is an orthopedic surgeon, who is the chief of women's sports medicine at the Brigham. She's really been a pioneer in, in developing a program for all aspects of care of the female athlete, whether it's the, the psychological aspects, whether it's endocrinology, as far as stress fractures are concerned, nutrition, and then, of course, obviously caring for the injured athlete as well. She's a true leader and pioneer in that. We talk about all things that are great. She's married to an orthopedic surgeon. She has three wonderful daughters. Uh, we talk about how female uh, orthopedic surgeons are growing, uh, that there's a need for that to happen as well. It's a passionate episode. It's a great episode. I know you're going to love it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast where everyone knows we bring the best of the best in orthopedics. And we are super excited today. We have Dr. Liz Matskin, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. She's the chief of women's sports medicine um, at the Brigham Women's Hospital, and she's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Liz, we know each other well. It is a pleasure to have you on. Really excited to be able to share your story today. Thanks, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. So you, uh, you're going to be one of the first... Uh, husband and wife uh, ortho show alumni, your husband, Eric Smith, is an orthopedic surgeon, who's a joint replacement specialist who we had on last year, was a great episode. So he talked a little about a little bit about you. So you're going to be able to talk a little bit about Eric too, if you'd like to, that's entirely up to you, as well as your family and everything as well. But we always start at the beginning, like, you know, when, when did, you know, where did you grow up? Were there doctors in the family? Was it always orthopedics for you? Was it later in life? Just give us a description as to what your initial background is. So I grew up in a small town in Connecticut um, and sports was really important to me. That's all I wanted to do. And, you know, it's the very, you know, typical story that, you know, I led many trips to the doctor, the orthopedic surgeon, and I found bones and muscles like beyond interesting in like third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And, you know, just decided I wanted to go to medical school. And it was pretty much orthopedics for me from day one. I tried to have an open mind um, and tried to enjoy everything I was able to experience in medical school. Um, but even the naysayers couldn't change my mind. You know, it's funny because especially those that were athletic uh, in their childhood, you're playing multiple sports, lacrosse, field hockey, soccer, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, we all typically get injuries, you know, especially the female athlete as well. And so it's not surprising that you would wind up in an orthopedic office and, you know, sort of be a part of that. So we hear that story a lot on the ortho show as a way in which, you know, people are sort of brought in. So, you know, we do our homework uh, here in the ortho show. So we know you went to Taft, which is a, was a nice, uh, you know, private high school in the Connecticut area. My sister's from down in that area, so we know all about it. But uh, and then you went on to Hobart. We got a connection there. My oldest uh, was a four-year letterman playing uh, men's hockey at Hobart, and uh, we would take that horrendous drive routinely, six hours each way back up to Geneva, New York. But I'm sure Hobart. Did you play sports at Hobart while you were there? 
I did. I played hockey and lacrosse. Oh, awesome. There you go. Uh, and female uh, women's hockey back in the in the 80s. Not a lot of programs going on at that point, I would think. No, we actually I was one of the founders of the original ice hockey program at Hobart and William Smith. And now they're a pretty legitimate, you know, division three team. Not so much when, when I went there, but lacrosse was a big deal when I was there. Still is. Yeah, we're contemporaries. I played Tufts lacrosse and Hobart was always the division three school that would always kick ass on the division ones and always be there. But, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny Hobart story. So, you know, so uh, Cam, who's my oldest, graduated a few years ago, but Mitchell, who's second in line, uh, played hockey for Endicott. And this was his senior year. Uh, and they lost to Hobart in the semifinals of the Frozen Four for the NCAA tournament. So it was in, inside the family for us, but unfortunately Mitchell didn't advance to his uh, to the ultimate championship. But so Hobart's a great place. You're doing athletics. You, you're dialed into medical school at that point. It sounds like you, you knew that's something that you wanted to do. And then it's off to New Orleans to Tulane for medical school. That must have been a great experience as well. It, it was. I mean, I studied hard and, and I played hard the nights I wasn't studying. Yeah, no, they do that well in Tulane. We took one of my my youngest went down to Tulane for the day and, and it was like a Tuesday afternoon and we went for a tour of the school and then we went to this little bar off to the side and everybody's got their laptops open with a pitcher of beer and eat pizza. I'm like, oh my gosh, but, uh, what a great place to go to school. But that was pre, that's like, I don't really know anybody at that point because, you know, Buddy Savoy didn't get there until later, Mike O'Brien. So this was, you know, pre that that sort of orthopedic department that we know of today. Yes, I mean, that, uh, Charity Hospital was still open and working. Um, and, you know, but that was really um, a time when um, there weren't many women going into orthopedics. And uh, there's certainly... I didn't have any female mentors or anything, but the department, they they took me in. Rob Barrick was the residency director and Tom Whitecloud was the chairman and they didn't shoo me away and they got me set up with some research and the residents at the time were, were helpful. And it was, I mean, I was very lucky in that regard. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had some uh, female orthopedic surgeons that always want to sort of, you get the stories of, of the, the lack of, um, uh, of communal activity or how well, I guess the words I'm trying to, to sort of advance your career. I was at the the Tufts program with Michael Goldberg. We had two women every year. We had seven residents and it was every year we had two. It wasn't by accident. You know, Bill Levine's picked up that torch at Columbia, obviously. And, uh, you know, I'm sure at the Harvard program as well at this point, but it's a big decision right there. They call it the 6%. I don't even know what it was back then. As far as the number of women in orthopedics, it was probably much less than 6%, but uh, so that's great that the they embraced you and they helped to encourage your career. Uh, and then how did you get to the University of Hawaii for residency? I'm like, you are the first ortho show alum that we could say went to the University of Hawaii for programs. You got to tell us all about this because I love the concept. So um, you mentioned my husband earlier. Um, so we actually met at Tulane. He was two years ahead of me and he was um, in the army. And so he had fit, graduated medical school and then went to serve uh, his years in the army. He was um, in Korea. And then somehow he decided he wanted to propose and he was heading back to the uh, Tripler Army Medical Center in Honolulu for his residency. 
program at the time. And so I, my plan was actually to stay and do my orthopedic training at Tulane. Um, and then I said, well, let's see, maybe I need to put the University of Hawaii number one and see how that goes. And so I matched there. I was their first female resident and it turned out to be an amazing place for me to train with a lot of hands-on experience and um, a great group of mentors for sure. I mean, that was back in the day too, where we all worked 120 hours a week. There wasn't, you know, time to go get your oil changed or get your teeth cleaned or form a union, which I think there's, we could talk about, I think they're trying to form a union right now if they already have it at the Brigham, but, uh, you know, mm -hmm. we're working hard, but I mean, it still did, it wasn't the worst thing in the world to be in Hawaii when you did get time off, I'm sure. Not at all. I mean, there were even, you know, times on on call or between cases that, you know, I got a mile down from the hospital in Honolulu, I could go for a nice run along the beach and get back in time with a quick shower for my next case. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So good for you. So that's the part of the story makes a lot of sense. You know, Eric's there, you're going to be, you know, a long distance relationship is hard enough as it is. And if you're working 120 hours a week, it's even worse. So obviously you made that decision and you guys are still together. So it's a great decision, you know, long term for your residency as well as for your marriage as well. So from there, you know, it's clear that, you know, the, the, the sports thing is still there for you, uh, you know, as a former hockey and lacrosse player. Uh, so you decide to get back and fly all the way across the other side of the uh, coast again. You go to Duke for your sports and uh, and shoulder fellowship in 2003. So tell us all about that. And we love shout outs on the Ortho Show. Let's get out those mentors and all the people that you worked with. Yeah, certainly. See, I had an amazing experience going back to Duke. Um, Eric had been deployed and, and I was trying to get sort of back to the East Coast Um we had one one child at the time and my entire family is east coast so i went back to duke um i had amazing mentorship um dr bill garrett uh t mormon larry higgins uh, carl basmania allison toth it was a great group um it was a great fellowship year and um then from there i actually then kept moving east to again eric was often about doing army things. So we had two, two, two kids at that time. And so staying East Coast was important for me just to be around my sisters and my family to get as much help as I could trying to practice and, and raise a family. So you're a full-time orthopedic surgeon. You have a husband that's deployed in the army and you've got two kids at the time. And I mean, what, talk about a struggle bus. I mean, you need help. It's not possible to get all that stuff done in a day. So thank God for family. And a nanny. And a nanny. <laughs> I'm sure that even continued. I'm sure when Eric came back from deployment, and then we got to figure out how you guys decided where you were both going to be in the same city and practice together. Uh, but the nanny's crucial, right? I mean, how else, you know, your, your career is just as important as his is. And, you know, so everybody has to sort of contribute to the process and, you know, Kids, you know, kids get it. They understand. Parents are busy and you, you do all the great things that you can. But uh, so I, you know, I'm trying to figure out this whole Tufts thing. So you were, were you on faculty at Tufts Medical Center in Boston? For, I mean, I don't, was I asleep at the wheel? I mean, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a Tufts resident. Chuck Cassidy is still a brother of another mother. And, you know, and the timing of things, I was in practice up here north of Boston 
But I just totally missed the boat that you were Tufts for those five years. I guess I was knee deep in starting my practice as well. But so tell us about that experience as well. Yeah, so um, when Eric uh, returned from his army commitment, then he went and did a fellowship at the Baptist. And then I started practice at Tufts. And um, I always had wanted to do academics and it was a great opportunity um, and Tufts was an amazing place to practice. And, you know, I think so many places are, are different, you know, where I am now is very different than Tufts, but they both have, you know, pluses and minuses. And I love my time there. Um, I got to work with the residents, you know, very intimately. It's a small program and Tufts is an academic medical center that has everything but it's very digestible. I mean, it's not massive. If you if you need to talk to the vascular surgeon, you can choose from you know one of three. Whereas some places you've got to sort through twenty of them, and you don't know any of them, and it, it can actually be a little bit harder. So it was a great place to get started for sure. Now was Jr. still there, or did he moved officially over to the Baptist? He was still a professor at Tufts, but was he working full time at Nemec at that point, or did he made the move over to the Baptist? When he moved, I moved in. Ah, okay. There you go. Makes a lot of sense. And so Bill Donaldson was still working at the time as well. Bill Donaldson had already um, pretty much retired. Okay. The, thank God. I mean, I adore Bill Donaldson, but those three and a half hour ACLs to make those tunnels perfect, that were brutal. <laughs> but I don't normally say anything negative, but love you, Bill. Uh, but for sure, no, I think that was so a great opportunity because it was still a, a really cool residency. The, the the residents went to Tufts, they went out to Newton Wellesley, they went to you know a bunch of places, and you got to work with them. And then you're their sports professor, and that's great. So then uh, that so it's and then Eric is sticking around too, right? He goes because he had a little little travels too. He went to BU, and then from BU, then to Tufts, and then from Tufts, you know, went to the Baptist. I think that's the story. Uh, and then you had the opportunity to go to the Brigham, which obviously, you know, was a really exciting thing, especially if you were truly now going to transition more into a, a woman's sports medicine type program. So would love to hear about that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was enjoying my life at Tufts and I received a phone call from Larry Higgins, one of my mentors actually from Duke, who had since moved to Boston. And he said, you know, hey, how are things? I said, they're great. And he said, well, I have have an opportunity for you and I was like okay I'm all ears and you know they said they really wanted to try and build this women's sports medicine program and um it was I thought it was just a great opportunity um and so I moved over down the road and I've been now uh in the Harvard system for the last I guess 12 plus years yeah fantastic and it's a real niche at this point and I mean you literally are one of our country's leading experts for women's sports medicine. And so obviously what a great, you know, that's, I, you think back to your time in high school and the sports that you're playing and at Hobart and the injuries that you've incurred. And now you're taking care of these female athletes routinely. I mean, that's gotta be very gratifying for you watching the evolution of your career. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit. So you're at the Brigham now and we'll talk about a couple of different things, but can we talk a little bit about some women's specific sort of sports injuries that you see? I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, for the listeners again, you know, my mother Judy's listening, so we want to make sure that she understands everything. Uh, but you know, there's a higher prevalence for for female athletes to have ACL injuries. There's stress fractures. There's the female athletic triad that we talk about as well. But 
you know, tell us a little bit about why the practice of, of women's sports medicine is specific and, and, and what it is that you're seeing on a routine and regular basis. Yeah, I think there's really two aspects to it. I mean, so one is the research side where we actually learn about sex differences. And there's really been a dearth of literature on that um, over the last many years, especially in musculoskeletal medicine or orthopedics. I mean, it's it was global, but we are behind the eight ball. So trying to just learn and understand what those differences are is kind of step one. Um, and then step two is, like you mentioned clinically, like we know there's a higher prevalence of ACL tears um, in our females. We also know that our females don't return to sport at the same rate as our males do after ACL reconstruction. Women tend to have a higher rate of osteoarthritis, more patellofemoral instability, uh, instability of the shoulder, higher prevalence in males. Um, and then you mentioned stress fractures or you know, what fall under the umbrella now we call red S it used to be called the female athlete triad. And now we call it relative energy deficiency in sport. And so I think one of the most important things about women's sports medicine is that we're very multidisciplinary. So when I see an athlete that has a relative energy deficiency type injury, I can refer to nutrition, sports psychology, physical therapy, endocrine, and have that network to manage all the potential issues that may have actually been the underlying reason for the stress fracture. I think that's really, really important. And I utilize your services quite frequently. I'm the team physician for UMass Lowell Division One School for, for over 20 years. And, and the automatic assumption is, you know, when it walks into the, the average doctor's office, okay, there's an ACL tear, you're 15, let's fix the ACL and let's just sort of get on with it, right? It's an ACL problem. But for so many of these female athletes, there's a constellation of things that are occurring that contribute to it. So the idea, as you said, the sports psychologist, the endocrinologist, are we, is there a vitamin D deficiency? Is there, are you not eating appropriately, which is helping to sort of create this and helping through all of those aspects of care really is a very unique perspective and it's not done a lot. It's not something that you see out in the communities or, and so it must be, you know, very exciting for you to be able to talk about that and share your concepts and ideas. It is. And I think just, you know, talking about it and thank you for talking about it because just bringing awareness to, you know, our patients, our athletes, our parents, our coaches, our athletic trainers, um, that's probably the most important thing that, that we can do. And, you know, these injuries, we can treat the injury, but we have to also understand if there's an underlying issue going on, like some of the things you mentioned. Yeah, no, I think it's so really, you know, kudos to you for, and that's something that you've developed. I mean, that's not something that was there, right? I mean, you 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 literally helped to develop that sort of entire process of thinking about caring for the female athlete. I mean, so again, really wonderful stuff, Liz, really happy that you've been able to share that. So all right, so let's talk about something else again, which is, you know, the 6%, right? It's probably upwards. It's probably getting closer to maybe 9% or 10%. I went through your your uh, CV and your you, you joined Ruth Jackson Society literally the minute I think you became an orthopedic surgeon, which is the Female Orthopedic Society, which is aligned with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. So tell us about Ruth Jackson, how you're involved with that and you know, where do you, where do you see, is it growing? Are we seeing more uh, women orthopedic surgeons coming down the pipeline? 
So, you know, you mentioned the 6%, the 6% is like practicing female orthopedic surgeons, but we are at about 9% for female residents now. Oh, so that number is going to keep ticking up. And, um, you know, it's an amazing time for females to join orthopedics. Um, I think it's, you know, we're, we've kind of, we're past the hump of being the first female in, you know, every little thing we do. Uh, I think we've reached most of those milestones. Every program's had their first female resident. Most boards have had their first female on the board. We've had our first female president of the AOS. Uh, so I think, you know, there's been a, you know, an excellent movement in that regard. I think RGOS has been around for a long time. It's a great place for especially our medical students to start seeking mentorship uh, if they're interested in orthopedics. I think that's the greatest role that RGOS can serve. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, so so let's talk about something that you know. I still I'm still thinking Canadian bacon. You know, Liz, I'm like I'm at OSET. We're at the we're at the ACL meeting, and you're up there, and everybody's coming up with all these novel ideas, and and you talk like you're Canadian bacon, that thick ACL graft that you use. But you know, it used to be not too long ago, you know, maybe even three or four years ago, the only real conversation that we were having about ACLs was like, what graft are you doing, right? You're doing a hamstring graft, you're doing a patellar graft, or you're doing a quadricep graft. We sort of, everybody went to the to figuring out where the new places for tunnels, but it became sort of like a pretty, you know, sort of boring conversation. We were sort of stuck in a rut. But nowadays, I mean, like you, we're going to be, we're not on the same panel at OSET this year. I'm right before you, but, you know, now you've got Greg DeFelice who's all over ACL repair. Rachel Frank is all over that, you know, and then we've got the bear. I'm a proponent of the bear, which is the new, you know, bridge enhanced ACL with collagen. There's a, and, and there's all these extra little things we're doing, like the ligament repairs, the lateral ligament repair. There's a lot of excitement and almost sort of confusion now, again, within the sports world about how we're managing ACLs. How do I mean, you've been, you've been doing this a long time. Like I have, I mean, what, what are you seeing right now in this world? I think that's a good confusion is a good word. I don't know if you saw the article that just came out in the last week or so out of the British Medical Journal where they were um, claiming that ACLs can now heal on their own. Just saw that. With, yes. With a brace or something crazy. Yes. Yeah. With a 90 degree brace. And so, right. you know, how, how do you interpret that? I'm not sure yet. Uh, I worry because I think we've all seen the ACL that's torn kind of scars back down onto the wall, but is, pretty incompetent um, and you know but it could very much look like a healed ACL on an MRI so I think we'll have to see where that goes uh, I think with repairs and bear technique I think there's a niche for it for sure I don't think every ACL is amenable to it um, and then I think you know the concepts that are most important for me are that you have a, a graft of adequate size and you put it in the right place. I mean, we know most failures occur for femoral tunnel malposition, which in this day and age just shouldn't happen. We have too many great techniques and fixations and, and ways to check to make sure that tunnel placement is perfect. So I feel like there shouldn't be any excuses anymore. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that so often, you know, when you have a master surgeon that understands, you know, the techniques, 
you know, if, if it's truly a master surgeon that does it the same way and is going to have reproducible results, you're going to have good results. I think there's a lot of healthy skepticism at this point when anything new comes into orthopedics for sure. Uh, but I would say to our listeners, as you're trying to identify, you know, who's going to help you with you or your, your loved one's ACL, you know, identify people that have been doing it for a while, identify people that are specific and masters at the technique in which they do. I would say that, you know, your quadrupled hamstring, uh, you know, ACL reconstruction is going to do fantastic. I mean, there's no question that's what you've been doing. So it's it's hard for, it's just interesting, I think at this point, for patients much less to figure it out, where I think even the doctors are confused as we're getting on the podium, trying to figure out where we go with this. Agree. And I think, you know, and I think you have to be, you can have your favorite technique or your favorite graph, but you have to have a toolbox ready. And, you know, I think that's what's really important for like when our fellows come through that, you know, it's not a one size fits all and a one graph fits all and you're going to have revisions and you have to be comfortable with, with different things. I mean, a BTB may not be good for certain athletes and a hamstring may not be good for others. So, Make sure you know how to use a quad. Make sure you know how to do soft tissue fixation, bony fixation, inside out, all inside, whatever you want to do. It. That is a Harvard professor who's a master at ACL surgeon, providing great outstanding advice you know, for our listeners, especially for the docs that are out there. I completely agree with you. If you're truly going to be an ACL surgeon, you got to have a bunch of arrows in your quiver ready to roll and tailoring the surgery to the individual patient. And then of course, loving all the other stuff you're doing, making sure that the bones are strong, the psychology is good, the nutrition's good, and all of those things that go in, because it's not just an ACL, the ACL is attached to a person. So, all right, so you have daughters. Tell us, tell, remind me about your children again one more time. I have three athletic daughters. Okay, fantastic. That's what I thought. At any, what, what would you tell your daughters right now about the concept of being an orthopedic surgeon? Are you in on this? Are you wanting them to do this? I'd love to hear your opinion on that. I mean, I'm all in, but I mean, obviously my, they're allowed to, you know, do what they want and what interests them. But, you know, I certainly mentor a lot of young females, especially in the summer. I run a summer internship program and I have three, you know, female students working with me this summer both shadowing, we get them in the clinic, in the operating room and doing some research. So, you know, a great opportunity. And that's kind of, you know, hopefully helping with the pipeline, increasing our, our 6%. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. So let, let's segue right to it, because that was going to be my last question for the interview, which is, what would you say at this time to young women who are interested in a career of orthopedics as to how they can help get their career moving uh, with mentorship, et cetera? Yeah, so there's a lot of opportunities nowadays. I mean, reach out, don't be shy. Um, both male and female mentors, just because you're a female doesn't mean that your best mentor is, is another female. Maybe you, you need a little bit of both. You can, you know, get different aspects from um, whoever your mentor may be, but come join us. It's, it's certainly the best, I mean, specialty in medicine, if you ask me. Well, I completely agree with you. And sports medicine people are clearly the coolest in orthopedic surgery. Sorry, Eric, but at least he is married to a super cool orthopedic surgeon like yourself. Yeah. You <laughs> see, sports is sexy. That's yeah, you, that's it. I love it. I love it. Now, listen, Liz, 
really want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. I want to thank you very much for your, your pioneering work when it comes to the female athlete, about looking at the entire perspective of what it is that, uh, that creates injury and how we can help our, our female athletes and all that you do as far as education with societies and with courses and conferences as well. A tremendous leader in sports medicine. It's been a pleasure having you on. I appreciate it. And thank you for putting out something we can all listen to on a regular basis. We love it. Oh, that's so you are officially an ortho show alumni, Liz. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the ortho show. Till next time.